you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lulovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Joel Lulovich here. And Lucy, welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. Today, we have another interview for you, and it's a interesting one because not only have we got a wonderful woman who is sharing with us how she does it all because it kind of does feel like she's doing it all because she's got a lot of things going on um <laughs> but she's also in a position where she can talk to us about a few interesting things like the gender pay gap we spoke to Meredith Hammett and I enjoyed speaking to her I related to a lot of her approach I think and her outlook in terms of the starting point you'll hear in the interview is she's telling us about how she works out what's important to her. And then we finish and her advice is around knowing that you're not stuck. When you make a decision, you can change it and it's not the be all and end all. And I just really like her approach and her perspective. Yeah, I've heard it said. She's very grounded. Very, very. And I've heard it said before, this idea that we should make decisions and yeah, do your research, do what you need to do, Just, but just go and make a decision because once you've made mm. it, then you can change it. But if you never actually mm. make one, you're just stuck and you're not actually getting anywhere or doing anything. And I think that was kind of us, like us when we decided to move down south. You know, it was always on the cards one day, one day, one day. And then eventually it was like, let's just go. We might change that decision in the future and move back, but we made it, we did it. Otherwise, we kind of never would have known. And there's always that stress. And even if it's not stressful, it's just the mental space of just having that decision-making process going on in the background until it is ultimately resolved. I find it stressful. You're right. Well, it depends on the decision, but it's just something in the back of your head. Even if you're just deciding what to have for dinner, it can be stressful. Like, it's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) You need a decision uh, maker. <laughs> I, I totally do sometimes. I just need to tell people, need people to tell me. People to tell yeah, you. what my decision should be. <laughs> so listen in because this is a good one. We're going to give you a little bit of an insight into Meredith and then we're going to head into the interview. So Meredith is the Secretary of Unions WA and she's been leading that organisation since 2012. So she's been there for a little while. And before that, or including that, she has 20 years experience in the trade union movement and she is a very strong supporter of women at work. So not only do we get to hear about her own juggle, she can also share the perspective of having been an advocate for all of us for most of her career. And her career has included working as an organiser and assistant secretary with the Australian Services Union, better known as the ASU, before she moved to Unions WA where she was initially the president. And while juggling this really important role. She's also a member of the Australian Council of Trade Unions executive team, as well as serving on the WA State Training Board, the My Leave Board and the Board of Triathlon WA. And I told you she does do a lot. In addition to all of this, she's a mother (laughs) of two teenage boys, a wife and a triathlete. Enjoy. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. And of course, it is not just Lucy and I, but it's also Harry as well today. So we'll all enjoy listening to those baby noises in the background. Meredith, when I read your bio, I really did get taken back to that phrase of there's a woman doing it all. You're a mum of two teenagers. You're running Unions WA, which is an incredibly important organisation. You're serving on numerous boards and somehow managing to fit in being a triathlete. So the question, of course, is how are you doing it all? (laughs) I wouldn't want to set up the idea that I'm doing it all because I think that's kind of really unhelpful for any working parent because I don't think anyone is ever really doing it all. I think 
probably we're all just doing the best we can at any given time to kind of juggle the things that we want to do, either in our careers or our personal lives, uh, as along with the things that we, you know, we have to do as a parent and as an employee and, and what have you. So for me, I really love my job and I think I'm really fortunate to have a job that I, I do enjoy so much. I do love my family and that's important to me too. But it's really important for me to have kind of balance in terms of spending time, exercising time with friends. And I think for me, that's been a really important balance that I've tried to find and to keep because I just think that keeps the whole show on the road. So for me, if I'm not exercising, then I don't think I'm being a good parent. I'm not being the best employee I can be. And so, yeah, for me, it's about trying to give time to the things that are important and that keep my life sort of working and trying to make choices to help me do that consistently. Meredith, do I hear a lady who's prioritising self-care? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's probably right. I've never really kind of characterised it in those terms. But the triathlon stuff I took up actually after my second son was born. So in my mid-30s, you know, having never really been a very sporty person up until that point in time, I did feel as though I wanted to do something to probably get fit, get out of the house a bit. I trained with women and so it was a really important social network for me as well. And, you know, the first triathlon I did terribly short, took me about half an hour to do it. So it's hardly a massive <laughs> sporting achievement, but I really loved it. So it became for me a way just to spend some time on myself, doing things for myself and often spending time, you know, with uh, women who are often in the same sort of circumstances as me. And really, it just kind of took over from there. So I really loved the social side of it, although I do find there's great benefits from the exercise as well. So I've tried to keep that up, even though life gets busy and it gets crowded. I'm no great sporting star, but I really do it just for me and I love it. I love that you keep using that word, what's important to me. You know, Mm -hmm. you keep saying important, important, and I'm like, that is showing that, that need that we all have to really work out what are our priorities because once you know them, then you can work your life out around them. So what does a typical week look like for you? Well, if there is any typical week, um, and often, you know, our story <laughs> listeners will be able to relate to the fact that, you know, one thing that's typical is that there's no typical. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so typically for me I try and um, train or do some form of exercise early in the morning. So, you know, I get up usually around 5.30 and try and get an hour in before everyone else in the house is up and, and that sort of how I've carved that time out of a busy schedule by getting up early and that moment it's winter, so it's dark, so it's not Is great. Is that a thing for triathletes? My husband's into triathlon and he does the majority of his training at four o'clock in the morning or silly times to me where everybody else is sleeping. Is it a triathlete thing or is that just what works best because everybody else is asleep and you don't have to worry about looking after them? I think for me, it's because everyone else was asleep and so I could just get up and leave the house without yeah. anything, um, you know, sort of getting in the way of that. But I think it is a bit of a triathlete thing as mm-hmm. well to find that time. So, so yeah, I usually start early and, you know, kids are in high school, so they're relatively able now to get themselves up and dressed, although they still need to be, you know, get out of the house and um, get to school with some assistance. And then, yeah, work is very varied. I've tried in this role to have a couple of days a week where I leave work a bit earlier so I can be home uh, when the kids come home from school and inevitably take them to soccer training or sporting activities or whatever it is they've got on after school. So I've tried to do that and I've tried to also, it uh, doesn't always succeed, but tried to maybe one day a week work from home or, or do things a bit differently so that, you know, you can just kind of work in a different way, which I think allows you to get a bit of balance. But, you know, the job's pretty varied. Um, it does have different demands. And so you've got to be pretty flexible in terms of how you make those. There's times that I work on weekends. Uh, but I try and balance that off with doing what I need to do. 
for the family when I need to do it as well. So how are you managing those boundaries? Because, you know, I know what it's like. We all know what it's like, really, that work can seep. Even doing the kinds of roles that we do, work can seep. You know, it's, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's that professional role that requires you to be available when you need to be available. So do you have hard and fast rules or do you just have to go with the flow? Well, it's, it is hard to have hard and fast rules. I think that's true because the nature of the work is you have to be available, you know, when you are. For me, part of that is trying to have a discipline about leaving work early a couple of days a week and because that often involves going home to pick up the kids and take them to soccer and, or drop them off at other activities. It's not like that does become a bit of a harder rule to change it when you need to, but it does make you stop and, you know, do I really need to act or can I uh, leave as per plan? I think those things help, but it is really, I think, coming back to all the time that question about, you know, why is this important? What, you know, do I need to do it? Can someone else do it? How are other ways we can kind of achieve what we're trying to do? And whether that's at work or whether that's at home, asking those questions, I think um, that's probably quite quite important. I sense that you're very organised with all the things that you have to do. Do you find that life now with teenage boys is much different to when they were younger? I mean, I think there's no difference. I think there's no doubt that as your children get older, you probably have more choices. So some things do get easier. When my children were young, I just really worked two days a week. And like a lot of women, made different choices about the jobs I would do and um, the hours I would work. I wanted to spend time then um, when they were young at home. And I just think it's, you know, um, I think some of you, you've got sort of fewer choices perhaps about what you do when your children are very young. I think as they get older, some of the issues become more difficult, but I also think some of them become easier. So now my kids can get themselves organised without me having to, you know, um, make sure they're doing that in the mornings. They're more independent. The eldest ones that know how to get around pretty well on public transport. But I do think you need to spend quality time with them, building that relationship through their teenagers or making sure. I think you've got to spend the time actually when they're younger, but then it's really just important to have time with them as they get to those teenagers so you can help talk them through, I suppose, the issues that they're encountering and just make sure there's a strong foundation there that if there are things that they're worried about or concerned about, that they know that you're there for them at the time they need to be. So some things are easier, perhaps some of the logistics are easier, but I think that time and that quality time, um, making sure that you've got a strong relationship is, is really important still. It's a question I think that comes up a lot amongst um, men and women, this idea of when is it more important to spend more time with your kids? And I think that a lot of people sort of say, well, you know, the argument is, oh, definitely when they're teenagers because they're going through puberty and there's all of these emotional issues and things that are happening in their lives and they're on their way to becoming adults, so you've got to be there to guide them appropriately. But then the counter argument is always, well, if you haven't spent enough time with them when they're kids and set up, as you said, those foundational relationships, they're not going to come to you with their problems when they're older. So I feel that there's always a need to be spending as exactly as you said, that that quality time with them and hopefully both parents. Mm. Look, I think that's really true. I was going to reflect that actually my partner, you know, played a really active role in my kids' lives as well. And I mean, being boys, I think that is really important and really valuable now that they're teenagers. There's probably plenty of issues that um, he can deal with probably better than I can perhaps. (laughs) So I would agree with that idea that, um, in fact, having both parents, you know, having a separate but strong relationship is really valuable because I just think inevitably 
they're going to make choices about the issue and who they talk to. And sometimes that might be mum, sometimes it might be dad, you know, sometimes it might be another family friend or someone. But yes. you've got to give, I think, your teenagers choices about responsible adults they can talk to, but how they can navigate their way through those tricky situations. My feeling is that the time's always important. It's just what you're doing with it is different. And that comes from all my worldly wisdom with my youngest child being three. <laughs> so <laughs> take that. Yeah, there's a little disclaimer that comes along with that advice from me. So <laughs> Meredith, tell us a bit about your career. You're now in a high-powered position as the Secretary of Unions WA, but you did work to get there. And like you said before, when your children were younger, you were working two days a week. And so your career has changed over the years. So Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when I, certainly growing up, I grew up in the country, had a fairly sort of politically conservative kind of background. I would never have thought actually that I'd make a career working in the union movement. So that's interesting. Yeah, so you never know really where your career is going to take you, do you? So for me, I started working in unions actually now about 25 years ago, so quite some time ago. I sort of left uni and I'd done a bit in industrial relations and had the opportunity to work for a union and thought, oh, that'll be interesting Uh, for a couple of years, I'll do that. And what I found once I started is, in fact, I really love the work. It's really very interesting, intellectually stimulating, always changing, very challenging. And so, you know, what I thought might be a short stay turned into a long stay and I really enjoyed it. And that was with a union called the Australian Services Union who represents, you know, a wide variety of different workers. And I became effectively a 2IC at that organisation for the Assistant Secretary. And that's the role I had when I became pregnant with my first son. And so took a period of maternity leave of about nine months and then came back to work for that role. And my partner took leave, uh, took extended leave and then worked part-time as our, as our son got older. And so that was, uh, so for me, working full-time and having a young son and having my partner at home, that was, I think it was really good for all of us for a whole range of different reasons. But then, you know, inevitably I felt like I wanted another, we, you know, we decided to have a second child. And I found at the point that I was making the decision to go back to work after that, that I really didn't want to go back into that role again, that the demands sort of on your time and on your energy were, was such that I didn't want to do it. I felt like I wanted to spend some time with my kids. And so that was where I made the decision to go part-time. And one of the things that really helped me at that point was my boss, you know, really, you know, said to me as I was trying to weigh up how to find childcare and, you know, this day my oldest child was in kindy and that was a couple of days a week. And, you know, what would I do at work? And my boss said to me, look, we want you to come back. Just tell us what will suit you and we're happy to accommodate that. And actually that took an enormous kind of weight off my shoulders at the yeah. time it is so difficult I think navigating that return to work and I mean, you've got a couple of kids in the mix and you're not sure what's going to work at a work sense that just for me took an enormous amount of pressure off and it became very easy to go back to work and so I've continued to work there it was just a couple of days a week and do some different things that I still enjoy and then the opportunity came up at Union Study which is obviously you know more responsibility more hours so I did stage both my children were at school so things are Probably a bit easier, but they still felt really busy, you know, family life busy and demanding. And, and I did feel at the time that it might be a struggle, but I really was encouraged to do it. And in the end, I came to the view that I should give it a go. You know, like what's the worst that can happen? And if it doesn't work out, well, we'll just make different choices. And if it does work out, it'll be great. And so you just, I think, adjust as you go along and keep an open mind to what will work. And yeah, it's been strong now for about nearly seven years and it's been, yeah, it's been great. So never regretted the decision even though at the time it looked felt like it might be quite challenging but I think that's the key is just to keep an open mind readjust as you go along you know and recognize well you can always make 
if your decision is down the track. Like, you know, it's not a life sentence. You know, you can't change your mind if it's not working out and do something different. I think that's something that so many people forget, isn't it? You know, I'm like that. I weigh it. I overthink really about decisions that I make and sometimes can just take so long to get to a decision. And then, of course, once you've made it and you've got there, you realize, oh, I can actually change this decision if I want to. So taking you back to the ASU and being assistant secretary before you had your first child, I think that's a you know, pretty hefty role to get to. Was that a plan for you? Did you have that goal that, you know, I need to achieve this kind of level before I take myself out of the workplace? No, it wasn't really um, a goal as such. And in fact, what I found is that the opportunities came up to do that role. And of course, you know, great opportunity and um, I took it up. And then, you know, at the same time, of course, your, your personal life, you're finding a partner, you're settling down and you find yourself kind of confronted as, as many women do with um, that sort of choice about, well, when would be the right time to have a child, you know, and how might that work and how might that fit? Bearing in mind that you don't ultimately have control of perhaps over all of the timing associated with that anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was really just the case of our relationship was in the right place. It was really the right time. I did, we both wanted children, we knew that. And it would have been easy to perhaps just keep on working and, and not think about it, but we knew we didn't want to do that. So, it was really just a matter of, oh, well, time to start making those choices and we'll see what happens, you know, because you never really know, do you? Um, and you don't really know how it's going to go. I was probably a bit naive, I have to admit. When I, Everybody I, is. And, of course, you know, you get a baby and you realise the kind of dramatic chaos that they cause in your life. So, you know, we just started really rethinking and um, readjusting and, and that was, I must say, it was kind of really after our first son was born and once I was, you know, sort of at the point of going back to work that my partner said, well, I'm going to have a long period of leave off. He'd planned some, but he ended up taking a much longer period and then he made the decision to work part-time as well because I think, you know, he realised he wanted to spend time at home with my son and I was sort of working full-time and committed to that. So he recognised he had some choices, but perhaps up to that point he hadn't thought about so much. So, you know, it's a good thing as well. It's great. Sounds like you've had some supportive employers and managers along the way. Do you think that's a trait of union organisations? Do you think they're more progressive or do you think that you're working with some good people? It's probably a bit both, to be honest. I mean, I do think unions are obviously aware of the issues that are affecting working women. I mean, they yeah. spend a lot of time, campaign, uh, time campaigning to try and improve what's available to help women manage their caring responsibilities. So I do think that in general, people working with women are aware of those issues. But you can't always guarantee, I suppose, the individual's attitude for the individuals that you're working with and their attitudes and approaches can make an enormous difference. And again, I'm sure your listeners will have many stories about companies can have great policies, but often the behaviour and the attitudes of their immediate managers will really colour how they approach decisions about what they're doing at work and what they're doing with their family. That is so true. So I think you need both really you need good policies um and good awareness but I think you really need good attitudes and the people that you're reporting to as well we so often hear about those organizations with the great policies and there's pockets within the organization that are doing really well you know that the team that's the poster child for flexible working or whatever it might be and then you've got someone else in the organization with a different manager and a different team who's like no there's no opportunities or availability for me yeah so how else is, is Unions WA and the union movement generally helping to improve conditions for women at work? What are the, some of the strategies that they're working on? So our approach is to try and improve a sort of minimum standards for working women. So I know there are lots of companies and lots of organisations that are looking at doing different things and there's unions working 
in different workplaces and, and negotiating collective agreements, which would deliver better pay, access to paid maternity leave and things like that. But we've also got to focus on, well, what should we have as minimum standards for all women workers? Because we've got to recognise that we have to lift everyone up, I think, to really get the balances that we need if we're serious about keeping women engaged in the workforce. So there's some key things, and it, it changes over time, but there's some key things that we're, uh, we think are important at the moment. One of those is paid maternity leave. And we do have a minimum scheme, which people can um, have 18 weeks off and get paid the minimum wage, but we think it should be longer, it should be 26 weeks. It should be able to be shared between both partners, so not maternity leave, but for either parent, and for them to be able to take that as flexibly as possible. And, of course, it, you know, ideally shouldn't require people to accept the minimum wage, but they should be being paid their normal wage because people's expenses don't decrease and they increase at the point. That point's really interesting because I think on the face of it, our government paid parental leave scheme looks quite good. Some countries don't have anything at all. So when you compare it, it does look quite good. But then when you drill down, it's very inflexible. The requirements to be eligible are very inflexible and they don't necessarily make sense either because they look at the female's income, not the family income and all sorts of different bits and pieces like that. And so on the face of it, they look great. But it's those little details that make the big difference when you're actually taking the leave in terms of how it's taken. And like you say, it should be able to be flexible. You should be able to spread it out. Yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think it's really important. The whole point of it is really to encourage people to be able to um, have families, not have that time that, you know, those critical first six months interrupted by the demands of um, cost of living or what have you. And so there's a really important um there's some really important issues underpinning it, both in terms of the well-being of families, but also baby, mothers, fathers, what have you. So, so yeah, so making that better. The other part of it, of course, is superannuation. So superannuation is not paid on any of the maternity leave payments, but, of course, uh, we think it should be. It should just be considered as part of the normal working life. We know, in general, women earn less super over their working life than men, so having that big chunk of time where, you know, you're kind of getting paid something but not it's not recognised for super purposes really just um, compounds that. So getting superannuation paid for that period as well um, I think is important. And then improving just people's um, ability to uh, get part-time work when they return from a period of maternity leave. So at the moment our laws set up a thing where you've got a right to request part-time work. But if your employer says, no, um, we can't do that, You've really got nowhere you can review or challenge that decision. Yeah. So the right to request doesn't really amount to much if, in fact, there's no um, there's no way to kind of, I suppose, challenge that if you think your employer's just saying no because I don't want you to rather than got a genuine business reason why that's why it's not going to be feasible. So improving that so that people have that more, so they're a bit more confident about their ability to negotiate something that's going to work for them at the point they're going back to work after having a child because there's some critical junctures where you know, if it gets too hard, women drop out of the workforce. And that coming back from maternity leave for whatever period of time, it's really important that people can get um, the work arrangements that they need, but also the family and caring arrangements that they need to wrap around. And that's where the whole thing fits together. And I can really relate to that because I found that that sort of point in my career, it could have worked differently. If I had a different employer or if I'd had children that had other needs or, you know, Difficulty getting childcare, I probably would have made different decisions and might not have come mm. back to that. And so there's some critical junctures, and we should make that as easy for working parents to navigate as we possibly can. Now, I know that all of these things that you've just talked about are part of the gender pay gap issue that gets talked about so much. 
excuse us. <laughs> so what I would like to know is, can you tell us what exactly it is? Because you hear different things from different places and, you know, you've got the people who sort of say it doesn't exist. Then you've got the others who say it does, but they blame it on such small things that, you know, we can't supposedly can't fix. So can you give us your version of it? I would say, first of all, it does exist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and the ADS measures it. So, you know, we're not just making this up. So, so basically it's the gap between average full-time earnings for men and for women. So it is comparing full-time to full-time work. So putting aside for the moment the fact that many women work part-time, there's a difference in what men and women take home. And around Australia at the moment, that difference is about 14% or about $240 per week. So they're not taking into account all the part-time wages and then averaging it out. No, that's right. So this is comparing full-time ordinary hours with full-time ordinary hours. Okay. Um, and so that gap is about 14%. In Western Australia, it's bigger. It's at 23%. So it's worst in the country, isn't it? Yes, it is. Biggest in- so there's a few reasons why that exists. Because people will say, well, in my company, that's not true because men and women get paid the same. Uh, and so people say, no, that doesn't happen. So there's a few reasons. Um, well, there's a few things that are, are um, contributing to it. So the first is really the fact that we just kind of value women's work and men's work differently. So a good example of that is childcare workers or early childhood educators mm. who study for three and four years to get the qualifications they need. And they receive relatively low pay for the work they do and anyone who had to look after, look after a child, <laughs> yes. child and be responsible for their emotional and developmental needs will know that is not easy work, right? Yeah, that yeah. is um, very demanding work. It is um, skilled work. People study for a number of years to be able to do that, and yet these are um, not well-paid workers. And you can compare that with um, people who work in a trade area, for example, uh, who, again, have studied, you know, maybe three and four years for that qualification, but we think that electricians and plumbers and carpenters would consider that to be skilled work. And so they get paid extra because we think that in that job it has a degree of skill or mastery or or something special that people should be rewarded for having got that. And so partly what we, we do, and it happens at a kind of subconscious level, so I'm not always aware of it, but we do tend to think that the work that women do is not skilled. It's just what women do. They're good carers, so they look after children, they look after aged people, they teachers, and that, that's not skilled. They don't have to learn that. It's just, that's just what women do. It's in their nature. Mm. Uh, whereas things that men do, we think it's much, we, we tend to think about it as something they've had to go and learn, they've had to master, and therefore they should be rewarded for doing that. So, so there is this um, unconscious bias that goes on in how we value jobs. That's compounded in Australia by the fact we have a very high level of gender segregation in the workforce. So yeah. we have a lot of women that do, in inverted commas, women's work, and a lot of men that do men's work. We don't, and, and it's quite striking in Australia that we have high levels of that. So that kind of idea that we don't value, you know, we don't come women's work as much is compounded then by the fact lots of women work in those occupations, lots of men work in those occupations. So that's one thing that goes on and, um, you know, there'll be lots and lots of examples um, where people can point to that. The other part of it, though, is obviously the choices that women make as they work and go through their careers. And most of that is because of their their responsibilities caring for children. Um, so the parenting, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So um, so at the point of um, taking maternity leave, it's most often women that take time out of the workforce. They might go back part-time, they might not go back at all. And so there's this disruption that happens to women's careers, usually lasting quite a few years. 
and it's just a very different experience in the labour market to what your typical male does where they start work and they might have short periods for family responsibilities, but fundamentally that still falls to women. And so women's careers kind of slow down at that point. And maybe uh, some of that's deliberate choices where women are saying, I don't want to accept that promotion, I don't want to accept that job um, because I want to be able to balance my caring responsibilities. Some of it might be just employers thinking that otherwise if you're working part-time you're not serious in your career, so we don't offer you those things. But there's a whole range of reasons why women's careers look very different for a num- at least you know a number of years and they often don't recover from that, um, that difference in working through those early years. And then I think the final thing is just we still experience actually just flat out sort of discrimination where women, um, you know, at the point they're hired or the point they're negotiating, their next pay rise will just be treated differently just because they are women. So even though we've got laws that say, yes, women and men should get paid the same amount of money for doing the same job, there's a whole range of other things that are kind of working in terms of how we value work, but also how women work um, in particular as that mean we just earn less over time. Um, one of the things you haven't mentioned, which is something that we hear quite a lot, is that women get paid less because we're not good at asking. We're not good at standing up for ourselves or saying we want a pay rise or negotiating to be paid more. We need to be more like men. What do you think of that? Yes, there is a bit of literature that supports that idea. Um, uh, but I don't think I don't think just um, teaching women to ask for pay rises like men might be a problem. And I think I had a, a feeling that might be your answer. <laughs> I've got these hours that allow me to leave early to pick up the kids from school and I can have school holidays off. That actually, you know, we kind of just become grateful for those flexibilities that the pay will take the second seat. So, so, yes, I mean, you know, I think that's probably important. But that sort of approach to the gender pay cap tends to suggest, oh, well, if women, you know, just ask for pay rises, they'd get them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think when you drill down on that issue, there's a whole range of reasons why. They just won't. So we kind of need to fix the structural problems and then some of those other things might pay dividends as well. And for the record, I'm quite pleased that that didn't make it to your top three. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, we need to stop, as as Catherine Fox said, stop fixing the women. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of people out there who aren't aware of the work that is being done by organisations like Unions WA to change these systemic problems and to lobby on behalf of women. You know, people sometimes think of unions as just talking about minimum wage and, you know, there's so much more to it than that. So thank you for giving us some insight into what's going on and what you're doing. Now, to finish off, we have a couple of questions that we ask everybody. Mm -hmm. And the first one is... Whether you have a mantra, are there some words that you live by? Yeah, so I think probably mine would be that it doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be good enough. And I do think it's easy to get into a sort of space where you, you know, when you're busy and juggling family and work and what have you, where you feel like you're always falling a bit short. And whether that's because of your own expectations, I have sort of found that for myself, you've just got to let that go. So you've got to really focus on, you know, what's important here. And a lot of the time, things perfect in my life, that's for sure. (laughs) But as long as, you know, it's good enough, then that's okay. So it might not be the greatest book week costume that I've created and I might be okay, you know, another 10 hours working on it. I could really get it to something that I was proud of, something worthy of Instagram. 
But if it's not that good and my kid doesn't care, why should I care? So, you know. Gosh, I just had that experience. We just had book week at school and my daughter, she came out with, I'm going to be Stickman. I don't know if you know that book. You know, the Gruffalo book, it's the same author of that. I'm sure the people who are, what is her name? Julia thank you Sutherland yes all her books are marvelous and she wanted to be stick man and I'm like how do we create yes make you look like a stick like how do we do that so she came up with the idea of um just just sew me this thing together mum and let's stick sticks all over it and I'm like great out comes the hot glue gun and we're set (laughs) it was only afterwards that we kind of thought about how we could have done it all using bark and everything but anyway that might be version two next year she's still keen on stick man yeah that's right (laughs) I love your outlook, Meredith, how you're, you're focusing on, you said it right at the beginning, what's important to me, things don't have to be perfect. You're very real and I like it and it's refreshing to hear. So what's one piece of advice that you could give to women who are managing this juggle? Again, I think I just reflect on um, what's served me well. And I spoke earlier about how, you know, I try and balance work, family, friends, because I just think friends are so important in terms of, um, you know, keeping you sane for these different years. And also training and, and exercise. And so I try and think about that a bit like maybe a bit like a chair. You know, you've kind of got to have four pillars to keep the whole structure mm-hmm. um, sound. And from time to time, they can change in terms of their relative size. But if they disappear or if they get too far out of kilter, the whole thing will stop working. And so I try and think about things that way. So, so not to say one thing is more important than anything else. But really, I need to try and keep all those things in a kind of balance because they do all really contribute to, you know, I suppose a life that I think is, is well lived. And yeah, so I'm not sure if that's a helpful piece of advice. I'm not suggesting people should take up triathlons, but think about what's important <laughs> and think about that kind of balance and making sure that you're spending time on all the things that matter. I like the chair. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at those pillars of life. It's, it's nice, a nice foundational idea. Well, if it's working properly, you can sit down as well. Exactly. You can have a rest. (laughs) So that's always a good thing. That is a good thing. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mary. There's lots of gems of advice in that, and we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. that is all from us today thank you very much for listening we'd love it if you could leave us a review on apple podcasts because it does help other people find out about our show and it also lets us know what you think and if you want to give us a little bit more info even take the next step and just send us an email um, or maybe that's easier for you it's hello at the we love getting emails from anyone who's listened so you can tell us what you liked what you didn't like and maybe you've even got a suggestion of someone we should interview You can find all the links for all of our social media and everywhere you can find us on thejuggle.com.au. See you next time. Happy juggling.